Neil Herman had just come home to his Westchester apartment with his morning papers and coffee. The phone was ringing. Are you watching? asked a familiar voice. The caller was a supervisor in the FBI's New York office where Herman had served as chief of domestic terrorism for most of the 1990s. September 11th marked the third anniversary of a retirement party that had been held in Herman's honor at Windows on the World, the restaurant atop the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Am I watching what, Herman asked. Flip on the TV, his old colleague told him. It'll bring back memories. That same morning, Louis Napoli, one of Herman's old charges, was afforded much less time for reflection. Standing at the window of the terrorism unit's lower Manhattan offices, Napoli briefly had the wherewithal to connect the site of the two burning towers to a suspect, Osama bin Laden. But then he and the rest of the unit had to hit the streets, and by the time he found himself running a second time from an avalanche of thunder and dust, his mind had gone blank. Tommy Corrigan had reached a couple of his old colleagues before the second tower came down, but in their stunned, dust-covered state, they'd only strengthened his worst fears about the number of casualties. John O'Neill, they said, had disappeared. O'Neill was a brusque, larger-than-life New York character who'd spent all but a few days of his professional life at the FBI, the last eight years as one of its top counterterrorism officials. Ironically, at 51, He'd retired from the Bureau two weeks before in order to take what friends called a cushy private sector job as the World Trade Center's chief of security. While no one who watched the September 11th assault on the U.S. was prepared for the horrors that unfolded that day, Neil Herman, Louis Napoli, and Tommy Corrigan were among a select group who saw the attacks as something other than bolts out of a blue sky. The three men, as veterans of New York's Joint Terrorism Task Force, or JTTF, had a history with the enemy that dated back more than 12 years. And even in their shock, they each experienced the instant recognition, when the second plane struck, that they were witnessing a painfully logical escalation in a war that had consumed a large part of their careers. Beginning in 1990, and for several years after, Neil Herman's domestic terrorism unit at the JTTF represented the best hope America had of preventing a new international form of Islamic militantism from metastasizing into a potentially implacable threat. This malicious movement's first moorings in the U.S. happened to be dropped on turf that belonged to Herman, Louis Napoli, and Tommy Corrigan, and the rest of the terrorism task force. Dutifully, they followed the leads, sometimes arriving tantalizingly close to the kind of break that might have smothered in its infancy the network that became Al-Qaeda. Eventually, most of the agents, including Herman, came to see that the threat had grown too big for the JTTF, or even for all the U.S. law enforcement agencies put together. At that point, when the guys from the New York office were trying to hunt down bombing conspiracies halfway around the world, the battle they saw, and the one they were asked to fight, had become two different things. They tried, but they were unable to make their superiors at the Justice Department or in the White House adequately appreciate why that was so. By the time Neil Herman eased into private industry in 1998, the 51-year-old St. Louis native had spent more than half his life in counterterrorism. The son of a St. Louis sports writer, Herman first arrived in New York in August 1974. It was an exciting time, Herman recalls, Terrorism was in its infancy, 
it had never before had the dimension it had then. From 1974 to 1978, a bomb was going off every month, it seemed, with the culprits ranging from anti-Castro Cubans to Croat nationalists to the FALN, the Puerto Rican pro-independence group. Herman says there was no foundation or history for what was happening. We were responding from one crisis to the next, learning on the job as we went. The sandy-haired Midwesterner soon gained a reputation as a relentless, methodical investigator, which is not to say he lacked imagination. Once, in fact, he had a parrot hypnotized and interrogated because it was the only eyewitness in a thorny murder case. Unfortunately, the bird refused to talk. The young agents worked hard, and they played hard, too. At joints like Omelia's or the Hudson Bay Inn, the young agents drank Budweiser and traded war stories into the night. As a young reporter, I drank with them, and in fact was one of the very few reporters who were allowed into their world. I got to know guys from the bank squad and the foreign counterintelligence squad, besides the crew from JTTF, and sometimes, late at night, a bomb would go off and we'd all roll out together. A fierce rivalry, though, had developed between the NYPD and the FBI on these cases. Cops and agents would almost come to blows over witnesses, crime scenes, and evidence collection. A truce was needed. New York, with its vast financial and media resources, had become a theater for every group with a political axe to grind. In 1980, a solution was finally hammered out. Following the model of the bank robbery unit that had been created a year earlier, the FBI and the NYPD agreed to create the first Joint Terrorism Task Force. The original plan called for 20 investigators, 10 agents, and 10 NYPD detectives. Herman was among the first agents drafted. The task force's first big case grew out of a 1981 botched armored car robbery that left two police officers and one guard dead in Nyack, New York. The perpetrators turned out to be holdovers from the Black Liberation Army, the Black Panthers, the New Africa Republic, and the Weather Underground, groups thought to have been defunct. The Brinks convictions put the JTTF on the map, but the case also pointed up a problem that continually plagues law enforcement. Many of the crimes enfolded into the JTTF's case had once been under investigation by the bank squad, so when those cases were taken over by the JTTF and they ended up with the credit for solving them, bad blood broke out between the two units. The ill feelings would come back to haunt the JTTF. A second related investigation on which Herman was the case officer exposed another problem. The New African Freedom Fighters was a successor to the Brinks Gang. The JTTF smashed the ring in October 1984. The group had been planning a crime wave, but the problem was these crimes had never left the drawing board. A single shot had yet to be fired when eight suspects were arrested and accused of plotting an armored car robbery. In the end, the eight defendants were acquitted of all serious charges. The jury had delivered a message. If it hasn't happened yet, it's not a crime. That message reverberated through the Bureau for years. Before the JTTF's first decade was out, there would be one more horrendous act of terrorism against a U.S. target, the downing in 1988 of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. After that, however, the FBI's terror watch went quiet. New York's JTTF, 
along with imitators that had sprung up around the country during the 1980s, had largely succeeded in tamping down homegrown terrorism, and by the early 1990s, many in government felt the selective application of economic sanctions and diplomatic pressure had ended, or at least sufficiently curbed, the threat of state-sponsored terrorism. No one was interested in spending a lot of time and resources on trying to guess what was coming next. A new cycle of terror was about to begin, however. The first harbinger was a stocky Egyptian janitor who took it upon himself to assassinate a radical Jewish leader in a New York City hotel ballroom. It was November 5, 1990. Rabbi Meyer Kahani finished his speech to rousing applause. The fiery orator had touched on lifelong themes, the immigration of Jews to and the expulsion of Palestinians from Israel. At the back of the hall, a 35-year-old Egyptian-born militant named El-Sayed Nosser conferred with his friend Bilal Al-Kazi. It looks okay, Nosser told him. I think we can do it. Al-Kazi glanced nervously around the room. A wiry Palestinian with a trim black beard, he was armed and, like the stocky, sallow-skinned Nosser, was wearing a yarmulke for disguise. For more than a year, they'd been attending Kahani's speaking engagements, with the understanding that if his security seemed lax, they'd kill him. Relax, Al-Kazi said. I'll be back in a moment. Maybe Al-Kazi didn't believe Nosser would actually shoot Kahani, or maybe he didn't want to be involved if he did. Whatever his motivation, Al-Kazi left for the men's room. Nosser draped a coat over his arm, drew a three fifty seven Magnum revolver from his waistband, and ambled to the front of the hall, where the rabbi chatted with a circle of admirers. Nosser paused at the fringe of the crowd. Then, aiming the revolver from his hip, Nosser slipped back the coat and fired twice, hitting Kahani in his neck and chest. As Kahani slumped to the floor, Nosser dashed for the rear exit. The room was in chaos. People were screaming. Nosser began screaming, too. It's Allah's will, he yelled. At the door, Irving Franklin, a 70-year-old Jewish activist, grabbed Nosser in a bear hug. Nosser shot him in the leg and continued fleeing. Outside the hotel, Nosser clambered into a waiting taxi on Lexington Avenue and banged on the divider, expecting to see the face of his friend, Mahmoud Abu Halima, the giant red-headed Egyptian who some investigators thought was supposed to drive the getaway car. Instead, he saw the fear-stricken face of a Hispanic man. Hotel security had shooed Abu Halima away from the entrance. Nosser ordered him, just go, but the taxi barely made it to the next corner before traffic and a red light halted their progress. A crowd from the hotel was now coursing through the lines of cars, searching for Kahani's shooter. Nosser hunched down in the back seat of the cab, but one of his pursuers spotted him and began banging on the window. In all the confusion, the taxi driver jumped out from behind the wheel, while Nosser slipped out the other side of the cab in front of the Grand Central Station post office. Carlos Acosta, a uniformed U.S. Postal Service police officer, was standing in the entrance. Nosser, determined to keep heading downtown past Acosta, edged along the building facade, hoping to get a shot off as he ran past the doorway, but Acosta popped out and confronted him first. Both men fired at once. Nosser got off two shots. The first bullet hit Acosta in the chest, but was deflected into his shoulder by the bulletproof vest he was wearing. 
The second whizzed past his head. Acosta fired just once, but it was enough. The bullet hit Nocer in the neck and chin, rupturing his jugular and knocking him to the ground. Meanwhile, Nocer's accomplice, Bilal Alkazi, had exited the hotel. He jogged a few blocks south to Nocer's parked green sedan and slid behind the wheel, shouldering the driver, a Palestinian named Mohammed Salome, into the passenger seat. Alkazi didn't wait to find out what happened to Nocer before flooring the accelerator. As all this unfolded, I was sitting with Captain Sal Blando and a bunch of Manhattan homicide detectives at Campagnola, an Italian restaurant on the Upper East Side. All of our beepers went off at once. We all hurried out the front door. Soon I was headed to Bellevue, where Kahani had just been pronounced dead. Nocer would survive his wounds by some miracle of modern medicine. As I raced downtown, I called my old friend Barry Slotnick, who had been Kahani's lawyer for the past twenty years, and filled him in on what had happened. Meyer Kahani is dead, I told him. He's at Bellevue. I'm on my way, Slotnick said. For many, Meyer Kahani was not a sympathetic victim. As leader of the Jewish Defense League, by 1990, his rabid anti-Arab views and terrorist tactics had made him a pariah among Jews and Arabs alike. As Kahani's lifeless body lay in a trauma room, Slotnick was negotiating with the mayor's office and police brass to have the body released to the family immediately. Under Orthodox Jewish law, Kahani had to be buried within 24 hours of his death, and Slotnick was making a persuasive argument that an autopsy would not tell the police a lot they didn't already know. Mayor David Dinkins' office interceded, and the body was released to the family and flown to Israel. It had to be 2.30 in the morning by the time I got to Mellon's, a great old Upper East Side watering hole, and found Steve Davis, a longtime friend who had been one of the cops I started the night with at Campagnola. Now Davis began telling me an important story. Nocer, the NYPD had already learned, had apparently not acted alone. Davis told me, so when the detectives get to Nocer's apartment, it's like one in the morning. They knock on the door hard because they figure if anyone's home, they're going to be asleep. But no sooner do they knock three times than the door flies open and there's a giant Arab guy with red hair standing on the other side like he was waiting there all along. Davis said that two men were in the apartment. One of them, the redhead, was Mahmoud Abu Halima, the New York taxi driver. The other was Mohammed Salome. Both admitted that they not only knew Nocer, who no longer